Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad and with me is Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings all human and cetacean listeners. Greetings to all of our listeners, Ben. Come on, stop just picking one or two groups of people to to call out in our intros. All right, I also um, welcome invertebrates. There we go. If this is the first time you're hearing our podcast, um, or if you're a longtime listener and you forgot what podcast you're listening to, this whole thing is just basically um, a chance for me and Ben, who are a pair of automotive journalists, to let you know what's going on in the industry, what we've been driving lately, where we've been, and what we think on uh, some of the more recent news that's been happening. Uh, ben, I think you're going to take it away first with the dry, the test drive of a new sports sedan, which is one of my favorite things in the industry, sports sedans. Yeah, you know, it's sports sedans are, I think, one of the few areas left in the car business that haven't been completely obliterated by SUV sales. It's, <laughs> that's that's a good point. That's absolutely a good point. Especially in the luxury segment, which is the which is a class of car I was driving. People are buying luxury SUVs, but they're also buying luxury sedans. It's it's a hand in hand thing. People want to have a car that performs well, that looks good, and that, you know, has a little bit of status associated with it. And SUVs, they don't necessarily drive as – they definitely don't drive as well as a sports sedan, especially at the entry level. So there's still some hay to make there for car companies that want to build something that isn't, you know, jacked up and riding on all-wheel drive with uh, huge muddy tires on it. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, typically the sports sedan segment has been dominated by one or two names. I mean, I'll say the BMW 3 Series has always been the king of that class, right? Sure. There's the 3 Series, there's the Mercedes C-Class, and then coming kind of in behind there is the Audi A4. Those are, I guess, the triumvirate of mm-hmm. German dominance that you will see in the entry level of the sports sedan segment. And then you kind of have uh, lesser players. And I'm not saying lesser necessarily due to inferiority but i'm just saying in the eyes of buyers you'll have cars like the infinity q50 mm-hmm. you have vehicles like the um the lexus is mm-hmm. and you've got mm-hmm. the jaguar xc so and i think the cadillac ATS. cadillac ats yes how could i forget because the cadillac ats is actually a very very good car that few people buy yeah absolutely but into into this mass of churning uh luxury comes genesis uh which is a you know the captive luxury brand of Hyundai, and they've recently come into existence the last couple of years, and they started out at the top. They started out with the G90, which was kind of an S-class competitor. Then they came with the G80, which was an E-class competitor, sort of, like a big mid-size car. But both of those cars, we'd already seen them. We'd yeah. already seen a version of those cars with Hyundai badges on them. There was the Hyundai Genesis, which was which is now the G80. Mm-hmm. And there was a Hyundai Equus, which is now the G90. So they were sort of familiar to us. The car that I drove this week is completely new. There's never been a Hyundai with that has this platform or has anything to do with this car. And that's the Genesis G70. And it's targeted right at the 3 Series, right at the C-Class. This is a really cool um, – I mean, you mentioned – that's a really good way to describe this car. We haven't seen it before, but we kind of have with a Kia badge, haven't we? Most of this car is similar to the Kia Stinger GT. That's that's true to a degree. They mm-hmm. share a similar platform, but it's more of a starting point for the Genesis. So the, the Genesis G70 is about six inches shorter than the Stinger. Oh, wow. Okay. That's pretty significant. And – it is up to 475 pounds lighter 
Dep- okay. Depending on which trim level that you look at. So it's it's a, the 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 short narrowest gap between the G70 and the Stinger is 160 pounds, and the biggest one is 475 pounds. So okay. that that's pretty significant actually. It that is makes definitely. a huge difference. And, and you know it's important too, I think, to make that distinction because the Stinger GT that Sammy mentioned. It's a great car, but it's GT is essentially all you need to know about it. It is a grand touring car. It is comfortable. It's relatively quick, but it's not – I wouldn't call it sporty. It, the handling is good, but not nimble, um, whereas with the G70, they really, like I mentioned earlier, targeted the BMW 3 Series. And when you do something like that, you have to make sure that you're on your game when it comes to suspension and chassis development. And in fact, I'm going to say – I don't know if this is controversial or not, but I would say that the G70 is more 3 Series than the current 3 Series actually is. I think that the G70, I think what Genesis has done is they've managed to take the past, which is what the 3 Series used to be back when it was essentially a more focused car than it is today, and combined it with the present and the future, which is a comfortable and you know gadget-laden vehicle, and made it into one sports in it and you can't get a car like the g70 anymore it's it's kind of a unique window into the past in terms of performance while maintaining a modern edge for styling it safety and technology so why don't you uh, let me know what's going on under the hood and which wheels are powered in this car i mean assuming this is a, a true sports sedan i would believe that this thing comes with a rear wheel drive form right yes it's a rear wheel drive platform that has the option of all wheel drive so when you start out ordering your Genesis G70, the base model is a 2-liter, 255-horsepower four-cylinder with a turbo. Now, I say 255 horsepower, it's actually kind of funny. The the horsepower is listed at 252, but if you get the sport model, it comes with a slightly more aggressive exhaust for sound reasons, and as a result, it adds three horsepower. So nice. I'm just I'm just going to call it 255 horsepower because it's such a small number, it doesn't matter, but it is in the advertising material, so if you see the discrepancy, that that's why it's there. Um, and that comes with an eight-speed automatic out of the box. But if you order the sport trim again, and I'm going to get back to the sport trims a little bit later on because they're pretty interesting. But if you order the sport trim, you get a six-speed manual, which is exactly what you would want with a small turbocharged engine like that. That's really cool because, first of all, it's tough to find a manual transmission four four-door uh luxury car out there, right? Like that's yeah, rare. They're disappearing. Uh, BMW still offers one. And uh, off the top of my head, I don't even think you can get an A4 with a manual transmission anymore. It used to be you could get the the front-wheel drive ones with one for sure, but... I think maybe the ATS in some trim levels, probably, at least the ATS-V. Yes, you're right. That's right. The ATS the ATS and the ATS-V, the 2-liter from the ATS comes with it as well. I don't think you can get it with Infinity. I believe that's a 7-speed automatic on the, the uh. Q50. Uh, and you definitely can't get it with Lexus. Can I, can I go back to the horsepower ratings on this car, though? Yeah. A 2-liter turbocharged four-cylinder engine that makes 255 horsepower. Now, I'm going to go back in time a little bit, and I'm going to remember a little car called the Genesis Coupe. If I remember correctly, that had a turbocharged four-cylinder that made 275 horsepower or something like that? Am I making things up here? So... I asked the question, I'm like, look, how related is this engine to, and I believe the the older engine was called the Theta generation Mm -hmm. of, uh, that was the family of engines. So I was told that there are Theta roots for this motor, but the big problem with the Genesis Coupe, why the Genesis, if you'll remember towards the end of its lifespan, the Genesis Coupe, which is of course is a Hyundai, even though it had Genesis in the name, very confusing, not confusing anymore because it no longer exists. But uh, the reason the Genesis, towards the end of its lifespan, the Genesis Coupe went V6 only. 
mm-hmm. right? The, the four-cylinder disappeared from the product mix. You could just buy the V6. They bumped up that four-cylinder from 250 or 249 or something yeah. to 275. It was pretty. It was a pretty sweet bump. It was, but there's. It was a little too sweet. Uh, towards the end of its lifespan, they could no longer meet emissions with it. Oh no! Okay, <laughs> yeah. that's what happened. So that when that engine disappeared, it wasn't because they didn't want to offer a four-cylinder engine with the Genesis Coupe anymore. It's because they couldn't, <laughs> and they didn't. They knew the car was on its way out, and it didn't make sense to redevelop the engine. Just for that vehicle, right? Mm-hmm. So flash forward to twenty, the 2019 model year, which is the, what the Genesis G70 is associated with. And they've got this very, very different engine that is still tangentially related to what you could have found in the Genesis Coupe. Cool. Okay, so that's a, that's a solid power plant. There, what's the other option? The other option is pretty badass. Are you ready for it? Hit me with it. It's a 3.3 liter twin turbo V6. Mm-hmm. And it puts out 365 horsepower and 376 pound-feet of torque. Woo! Okay, so if I remember correctly, this is pretty much the same engine that you can get in the G80 Sport and probably the Stinger GT, right? Yes. Yeah, it. and the G90. It's it and is a it is a big motor that you can that was previously available in much bigger cars, and now it's in this way smaller car. Uh, and as a result, you might predict the fact that this car is fast. There's no zero to sixty official yet. But unofficially, you're looking at 4.7 seconds. Okay, that's plenty quick. And I, I, I mean, actually, um, I looked it up before the podcast began, and they actually do have an official number in the, on the U.S. press site for four and a half seconds. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, let me get this straight. This car has, like, a launch control or something? It has a launch control. All the automatic cars have launch control. Wicked. Um, I didn't use it. I didn't need it. I honestly don't believe the car has 365 horsepower. Oh. I I think it has more than that. I think they're oh. pulling they're pulling a BMW. Uh, I don't believe that the 340 from BMW has 320 horsepower. That's a crock. There's there's no way. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's also true. I believe you on that. They, so, none of their none of their power numbers feel like what they say they are. No. So I I think that the BMW is making a lot more, and I think the Genesis is making a lot more. And cool. um, it it the, like the 2.0T. You can get the 3.3T with all-wheel drive or rear-wheel drive. Again, in Canada, it's all-wheel drive only. Uh, but there's no manual transmission option. You're just stuck with the 8-speed auto. And I shouldn't say stuck with it. It's pretty good. The only weirdness I had with the 8-speed, and a, a few of my colleagues noticed this as well, sometimes it would hold gears for way longer than it needed to. Almost like you'd kick down and then accidentally pull the paddle to keep it in whatever RPM you're at. So that was a little strange. But I'm sure that's just a software tuning thing. Um I got to drive the car on a racetrack and on the street. On a racetrack? Which yeah, racetrack? The Circuit Mont-Tremblant, which is uh, an old Formula One course that Ooh. is in the Laurentian Mountains just north of Montreal. It's a great track. It has a lot of elements up, down, side, side, like corners left, corners right. It's got some I, fairly I, decent strengths. I'm really glad to hear that a track has some corners in both directions. Uh, you laugh, <laughs> but take a look at Lime Rock sometime and tell me how many different directions you turn there. I guess so. There's a lot of it's it's funny no it's funny you mentioned that because everyone assumes that a road course you all you'll turn left and you'll turn right that's really not true um, there are some tracks where you're always turning in the same direction and it can be weird for people who are used to that track to go to another track where they have to turn left <laughs> for example uh, anyway kind of a digression there but uh, I mention I always mention it when I describe a racetrack because having these different elements makes it more challenging and more interesting. Okay, so, but go, getting back to the G70, the G70, if I understand correctly, like the Stinger GT, must have had some 
uh, development time on the Nurburgring and some tracks. And yeah, it's it's it was tuned on the Nurburgring. That's that's they made a big deal about that. And if I understand correctly, the dynamics, the chief of dynamics at Hyundai and Kia is this guy uh, Bierman. Is that his last name? Yes. Who used to run BMW's M division back in their back in its heyday? He did. Did I... they go on? Yes. No. Yeah, yes. I think you're. What? Let's keep. Let... Oh. <laughs> um. Did does all this translate into a fun to drive car on the track? Yeah, definitely. And what? you know what else? Really? You know what? You know what else is fun about this car? It comes with a limited slip differential and uh, a a multi plate LSD. I don't think a mechanical any... LSD. Yeah, there's no other car in its class that gets that, except for the AMG C43. I think. I think that's the only vehicle. That's where... kind of cool. Yeah, uh, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. Both cars are fun on the track. Normally, you know. I've said this in the past about sports sedans, but a lot of the fun in a performance situation from a modern sports sedan comes from the fact that they make stupid amounts of power. So when you just hit the accelerator, it's like, whoa, this is amazing. And you zoom around and everything's cool. But the chassis development has kind of – I wouldn't say it's frozen in time, but it's they're, – they're not as involving as they used to be when, when this class of car was lighter across the board. Okay. For the For the Genesis, that's not the case. I had yeah. as much fun in the manual Turbo 4 as I did in the extremely quick 3.3 Turbo V6. Even even though on a back straight, the V6 walks away from the Turbo 4, it, it's not even close. There's just so much fun to be had squeezing you know a few extra seconds out of the chassis with that 6-speed manual transmission and just really being engaged and, and present in what you're doing. Uh, I was really surprised by that. I didn't expect it. I Because... Ex- I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really like the four-cylinder engine that BMW has in the 3 Series, and I'm not a big fan of the one that's in the the Mercedes either. They're perfectly fine, they're very competent, but they're not exciting. I I agree with you, especially on the C-Class front. I I can't remember the last time I've been in a 330 or any of the 30 equipped, um, that that two-liter four-cylinder engine. Um, from BMW, but I do agree with you on that sequel on the Mercedes front. It's not a very, it's a very appliance-like engine. Yeah. It, do, it just gets the job done. It gets the job done, and you know the the big difference between that motor and say the one in the Genesis is the stuff that you tor- typically notice in a get the job done motor, like rev hang on shifting, or kind of like a Hooverish vacuum sound under the hood while the while the boost builds, or kind of having difficulty moving from one gear to the next at the top end of the RPM range because it's not really designed to be shifted quickly. All of that was absent in the Genesis. Genesis really made the engine feel as naturally aspirated as possible. It felt like it was a co-conspirator with me out on the track rather than something I had to drive around. And once I figured out how to nail the shift points, I really, really enjoyed my time with the car. So this is one of the things I really wanted to to know about this car. I wanted to... I'm actually... When it comes to turbocharged engines with the manual transmission, especially on the track, I always wish I kind of had a naturally aspirated engine because I like that buildup, that really progressive buildup um, through the through the rev range and through the gear range as well. What I don't like is a peaky engine. That means that I have to be constantly aware of where the power and torque band is, and so I can change. I have to change gears. That seems really unnaturally. Is do you want, do you know where I'm going with this? Well, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think most small displacement tor- turbos have a really flat torque plateau, so you don't okay. really notice that so much. Sometimes they fall off right at the near the near the end, like maybe past five or six thousand. Yeah, I find that, right? I find that they're not fun up up top. I feel like there's right. no reason to ring it out. Uh, with the G70 though, it made me want to do it. Um, Perfect. That's all I want. That's exactly exactly what I wanted to hear. That's really cool. That's actually really um that's 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 inspiring. 
No, uh, there's a couple of differences between the sport trims uh, with the V6 and with the four-cylinder. The the biggest one is, well, as, aside from, I, I only drove all-wheel drive versions of the V6 on the track. We didn't have any rear-wheel drive V6s. But yeah. the all-wheel drive system was transparent. I didn't really notice it in, on a performance environment. And I also didn't notice any understeer. The car was extremely balanced. The chassis has 50-50 weight balance, but normally when you have uh, an all-wheel drive on a on a very powerful car, sometimes it plows a bit in the corners. I didn't notice that. Um, the steering is pretty decent for an electrical system. It's it's mounted on the rack, so it's it's a little more direct than what you would normally expect from this kind of thing. But the biggest difference between the two cars is the V6 has adaptive suspension and the four-cylinder doesn't. Okay, and you really feel that difference on the track and on the road? I didn't really notice a difference. Uh, Genesis, cool. Genesis was talking to us. Uh, basically, uh, the, the that's Genesis are really cool, or that's really bad. The the product manager <laughs> for Genesis Canada, uh, Patrick Danielson, was there, and he had actually set up all of the the V6 cars with the. So there's there's several drive modes. You have like Eco, Smart, which is their version of Dynamic. So I'm sorry, not Dynamic, but Adaptive. So adaptive. it'll yeah. try to figure out if you're driving aggressively or driving like a grandma. Um, it has uh, a sport mode, and it has a comfort mode, and it has a custom mode. And they Patrick had set up all of the custom modes to be full sport except for the suspension because the area where we were had a lot of rough pavement because the mountain roads are great through the Laurentians, but they're not maintained very well. So he was like, look, this will give you a chance to still have fun with the car uh, because sport mode really does accentuate the throttle. It's, it's, it's a lot quicker throttle response than what you get with comfort. And it makes the steering heavier if you care about that kind of thing. But he's like, it'll give you all the fun of the sport mode without bouncing you around. So I tried that, and I didn't notice a huge difference. Honestly, when the car was in sport or when the car suspension was not in sport, it felt pretty comfortable. And then likewise, with the Turbo 4, it doesn't have adaptive dampers at all. And yet I never felt uncomfortable. And that's really – that became the – the focal point for my interpretation of the car, not only does it offer you modern luxury and comfort, but it, it it does so without sacrificing performance. And I don't think you can say that about any other car in its class. That's really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm excited to hear that because um, I'm really happy to hear that because sometimes sports sedans get the sport stuff to too get too aggressive with the sports stuff uh, and you get a stiff, uncomfortable car on the road or you go the other way around. I think this is the case in the C-Class. Um, you get something that's a little too floaty and not engaging at all. It is the case with the three series as well. The, the newer, three, C, the new three series. Yeah. yeah, it's fine, but it's it's. I mean, it's not the three series of ten years ago or fifteen years ago. And I feel like the G70 is the three series of fifteen years ago, but in a modern context. And it doesn't me? it doesn't beat you up at any point. Even with that 2.0 T Sport with the the the, the non trick suspension, it mm. was not uncomfortable. I'm I'm really encouraged by by hearing all of this, but there are some other some other benchmarks in this class. I know the dynamics. We've always said old C, old three series have have been the the benchmark for dynamics, but the interiors. I've always said that C classes have a very gorgeous interior, um, and I'm always happy about when I'm sitting in a C class. What's the case in the G70 here? Do am I looking at something that's attractive, that's well crafted, or is it a functional um, cockpit? No, it's quite nice. If you get the 3.3 T Sport, which is the top trim, you get Napa leather, quilted quilted seats, um, pretty pretty nice materials throughout. There's no ridiculous knob to twirl around and try and access the infotainment. It's just a straight up touchscreen. It works fine. It'll be familiar to anyone who's been in a Hyundai or, or a Genesis. It's it's similar logic. 
Um, the the interior and, and and if you don't want the sport part but you still want a nice interior, you can get the the 2.0T Prestige, which is kind of the um, I would say it might be the volume seller. They have a, they have a trim called Elite as well, and this is where you get a whole bunch of gear. One thing that really stands out, uh, not so much about the interior, which I liked, although I will say there's not as much rear seat room as I would like. Mm. I had trouble photographing the dash from the back seat with the seats tilted back, and that's something that doesn't happen a lot in this class of car. Uh, I actually got trapped. I, I managed to. Oh my wedge, gosh. I wedged myself in. Yeah, but I, I didn't. I didn't run out of oxygen or anything. I was okay. But how did you call for help? I I made a bird sound, mm-hmm. and um, another bird responded. And then there's this thing. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's called the bird telephone. Mm-hmm. And the bird telephone contacted the bird police, who contacted a friend of mine, who called Genesis and said Ben's trapped in the car. But it's really handy that you have some uh, some bird friends over in the Laurentian, Laurentian I, Mountains. I could have just called on my own phone, but I wanted to, you know, you don't want to turn you your don't back wanna, on. Yeah, you don't want to turn your data on and your battery. And you, you don't want to turn your back on the bird community because once you do that, it's hard to get back in. That's true. What, okay. the, but, but back to the Genesis G70. All right, that's what we were talking about. So, something else that's cool about it is standard equipment for safety is everything. Like, wow. there's no options. You get adaptive cruise control, forward collision warning, forward collision braking. You get um, high automatic high beams. You get a an attention warning thing that monitors whether you're feeling sleepy or not. You get blind spot assi- collision warning. You get lane keep assistance. That's all standard with the base model car. Nice. So yeah. even if you get that, and, and, and it also comes in that manual model? No. So that's the only okay. thing. The manual model does not have adaptive, adaptive cruise control. So all the stuff associated with adaptive cruise control that needs that front sensor, so that includes the high beam assist, that includes the lane keeping assistance, and the forward collision, that's off the table. Okay. But okay. And for some reason, so is driver attention warning. I don't, I don't know why that's – maybe it's a software, <laughs> software thing. But that's the only vehicle that doesn't have it, the only one. Okay. Uh, and, so- and that's, that's great. You have to pay a lot of money to get that from BMW and, and Mercedes. Yeah, uh, and they usually don't offer them that standard, uh, the whole suite of things in in a standard basic car. Now but I'm also, gonna I'm gonna I want to put an asterisk here. We drove mm-hmm. Canadian market cars. I was told the U.S. market will be almost identical, but the U.S. market is not having their launch event for this vehicle uh, until at least July. Ooh. So that's a couple. Yeah, that's a couple months away. So we've got an uh, unnamed automotive podcast exclusive. It is an exclusive in the podcast world. There were Korean market cars that were driven last September in Korea, but they were tuned very differently from what I was told by Genesis. So this is the first time a North American spec car has been driven in North America or anywhere for that matter. Very cool. Um, I drove a car this uh, this past week, but not in North America. In fact, Ooh. I traveled all the way to the Middle East. Uh, I was doing some... I was taking care of some business in, involving a an engagement and a an engage- marriage. Wait, 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 wait. An engagement? Yeah, uh, I'm planning on getting married real soon to my uh, my girlfriend, now my fiance, and we managed to get that all done. But it involved that is that is super exciting news. I don't want to just gloss over that, everyone, <laughs> but that's very very cool. And um, he couldn't have picked a better person. Let's just let's just leave it at that. Yeah, uh, and I'm sure she's listening right now, and she's blushing uh, at all of this attention. But I'll get back to the point. I was in. The UAE, uh, I spent some time in both Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and uh, the car scene over there is quite impressive, Ben. I don't know if you've been to the Middle East. Um, I haven't, but I've I've seen some some videos. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, it, it seems like, 
an ultra enthusiastic environment. It really is. People, I mean, even if this, even if it doesn't come to the sports cars or the luxury cars, people spend a lot of time in their cars. I'm telling you, in the Middle East, people don't want to get out of their cars because the moment they do, they're they're subject to 40 degree centigrade weather. So they just say they just stay in their cars. They get they get meals delivered to them in their cars. Um, when they go for a drive-through, or they they will prefer drive-throughs over sitting down in a restaurant, just so they don't have to get out of the get out of the car. Almost all of the parking lots you go to have um, a valet service, or even a car wash or a hand wash service um, in the spot, which is quite impressive. The only thing is the way that people drive is really intimidating. It's it's aggressive. <laughs> it's um, without um, much space or or gaps. You really have to be you really have to be in something that that gains you respect and gets people's attention on the road or else you'll be completely forgotten and no one will let you in, which is which is something I learned. Um, I learned the easy way. I was in a pretty big vehicle. I was in the brand new 2018 Land Rover Discovery. And you'll know this as being a three row SUV that we can get in, in North America. But the the way I had it was quite different. I had it with all of the trimmings, with the exception of the engine. Instead of being equipped with a six-cylinder supercharged engine, which is the way I'm used to it here in Canada, this vehicle was a four-cylinder turbocharged uh, unit. It makes about, I would say, if it's if it's based on the same one that you find in the Discovery Sport, it's about 230 horse, 37 horsepower and 251 pound-feet of torque. So, so why, why less horsepower for the Middle Eastern market? I'm not quite sure. They seem to have a lot of faith in the the power delivery of this car. The other thing that I noticed or I learned while I was in the, in the UAE in particular is that they're very aggressive with uh, speeding laws. In fact, anything over 20 kilometers an hour is instantly ticketed using a camera system. Um, and I think it's about $300 uh, the, with, the, with, the, with the exchange rate each time. And wow. they have the cameras set up one kilometer apart. There is no leeway. You can get a bajillion tickets on one route, um, and it and it 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 gets uh, it it adds up, man. But uh, getting back to this car, I I actually really enjoy it, even if it was slow. I mean, as I mentioned, I'm I'm going there for some engagement. Uh, reasons and and i'm meeting a whole new family and uh there was a lot of uh, a lot of confusion as to what i was needing what I, w I needed to do while i was in town but having a slow car a quiet car something that i can kind of seek refuge in was really helpful i was happy with it and i was especially happy with all of the technology that was found in this car so um how different was the car different at all from the north american spec other than I the engine I really don't think so. Let me run down the 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 specs or at least the features. I had um, those usual adaptive LEDs. I had um, a seven seat climate control package. I had that, which means that <laughs> all of the seats had some form of of comfort or or climate con conditioning, which I think is pretty impressive. This, that means the second row also had vented and heated seats. I think that's kind of rare. I definitely vented. I mean, you don't see that very often in, in the second row. And, I, you know, it's interesting. So were, they, they still folded, I assume, right? They powerful. I had power folding seats in both the second and third row that I can operate from the from the infotainment system. Wow. So, you know, the, the reason I ask that is because the ventilated seats, there's actually a, a vent in the seat. Like, it's like a, a mechanism that's on the back. Mm -hmm. And if you were to fold that forward and then put heavy cargo on it, 
<laughs> theoretically, no, but theoretically you could crush that or damage it. So it's just, I think that I think that would be the reason why you don't often see it in the second row. <laughs> I could be wrong. I mean, if there's an engineer listening who wants to tell me how wrong I am, you can totally at me, but. Uh, I was also very happy with the, there was also massage seats. Um, there was a head-up display. There was a digital dash, a very, and, I, and I've mentioned this in the XF um, coverage that we had a few weeks ago, the Jaguar XF coverage. That is a fantastic digital display. And it's extremely customizable. You can have two dials, you can have three dials, you can have zero dials, just a map in front of you, like a virtual cockpit from an Audi system. I was especially impressed with the navigation system, which always managed to get me in the right place. It was never um, condescending in the way that it talks to you. And a lot of cars have this method of, if you miss a turn, you know, that recalculating. Um, you find that condescending? It's just I, a machine, Sammy. It doesn't have any emotions. Oh, it's definitely condescending. And it can be stressful, especially when you know that you missed something. Um, this car never felt like like it was telling you what to do. It was giving you very, very clear instructions well in advance. Um, and that's helpful for somebody who's never dri- driven in this area. So if you, you liked it because it was friendly. Exactly. And actually, the other the other occupants I had in my car noted that the navigation instructions were very good which i thought was pretty impressive too there are some issues i have with the car um it has a power tailgate a two-way power tailgate so one portion lifts up and then there's a a i guess a, another tailgate that folds down that you can kind of sit on yeah um, if you have a picnic or something or okay. if you're you know watching horses in a field somewhere or mm-hmm. in, in or the camel, countries country camel races i guess yeah, that's what we do. Or falconry. Your, your falconry, I can get behind. Yes. Um, except for that system never went down all the time, and I had to manually like yank it down. But then when I closed it, when I used the powered closing tailgate, it would both would close at the same time, which was nice. So that was a little annoying. I also can't get ahead. I can't. I just cannot vouch for the two-liter four-cylinder engine. It always seemed like it was it was a step behind what I needed it to be. I'm I'm really sad to to report that because it was the biggest issue I had with the car. It got up to speed pretty quickly, but getting any getting any passing speeds or any momentum just felt like a like a, a chore. You, you know the the other reason that tailgate has the second piece on the bottom is so if you open the tailgate, stuff doesn't roll out. That was really helpful. I really liked that. So maybe that was um, a feature or or something that I could uh, program in and out. That's why it doesn't automatically open for you. That's interesting. Uh, and I would have liked to know if, because that's still like something that you've got to get uh, in the way when you're lifting or, or putting any cargo in there. The car, as it was equipped, was was priced at 384,000 um, Emirate dirhams, which translates to about 124, uh, 124,000 Canadian dollars. Yeah, but I mean, you can't compare it under the market's pricing, is it? Absolutely, but even even a fully equipped discovery in in North America shouldn't crop shouldn't pass on one hundred thousand dollar mark, right? No, but I mean different import regulations and taxes and tariffs and, and whatnot. That's true. Um, other elements that are important in this vehicle are the parking sensors. It has self parking. It has cameras everywhere, and that's helpful with a big car like this. And the parking spots in the Middle East seemed quite small in some places. Um, so you have to, you really have to know your, your dimensions while parking the cars. And even while I was there, somebody else, one of my, one of my, my new cousins actually, um, had his Cayenne, uh, dinged right in front of us by a valet because they just didn't know the, um, 
They didn't know the dimensions of the car. Can you imagine? So it helps to have these kinds of these kinds of cameras and parking sensors all together. And I'm telling you, this car was really well equipped when it comes to technology. But I will also bring up the Middle Eastern um, car in car community. It's intense, man. The amount of cars that you see on the road, um, especially in Dubai, are it's overwhelming. The I saw a significant number of Rolls Royces and Bentleys in both the four and two door variety, which I thought would be kind of rare. I saw a number of Ferraris as well. I even took my the I, I even took a day to go to Ferrari World in in Abu Dhabi as well, which was quite yeah. Fun. You 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 talked about that in the last podcast. So what was that like? I'll be honest. I was hoping for it to be uh, something a little bit more than what it was. But the <laughs> roller coasters were really impressive. Uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of fun. Um, so was, what is it like? Like is it just like is there anything? I'm trying to trying to understand what it is like. Is it a, it's a, theme, a park. theme park that has yeah. Ferrari logos or are there significant cars there? Is there a museum component? Like how does that okay. work? So there are a bunch of um, Ferraris littered throughout the park. They're just sitting on pedestals and they, you know, they say something um, about them. So there was Berlin, there are a couple of Berlinettas and uh, 488 GTBs, which is pretty cool. There was also not a museum, but a gallery of cars that they kind of designed as a, they had a, a design study and then the the real life version of it, uh, including the GTC4 Lusso that you had driven um, a couple of months ago. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty cool. But it just, I don't know, it didn't give me enough information about what was going on during the design process and what, you know, challenges or, or ex- exciting elements that they added to the vehicles. It was just like, here's the concept and here's the production car and that's it. And we've seen that a number of times at auto shows. So I was hoping for a little bit more in that area. Uh, especially as somebody who might not know a lot about Ferrari, I'll, I'll admit, I don't know a lot about the brand, um, and its heritage. And I was hoping to gain a little bit more knowledge while I was at the, at the theme park, but instead I got a good time with some, some really fast roller coasters. Uh, So was it busy when you went there? Actually, no, I went on a Tuesday afternoon, um, and I spent maybe three or four hours there and that was enough. That was enough to see everything I needed to see. All right. Yeah, which seems kind of sad in, in comparison. I mean, I have a, we have a, a amusement park here in, in Toronto called uh, Wonderland, Canada's Wonderland. And it takes a whole day to get through. Uh, and that's not including a, a, a water park component. So the four, the four coasters in, in Ferrari World were a little disappointing. I wish there well, was. Well, it does seem like the oddest of automotive. Like, if you're going to put together a Ferrari-themed theme park... And you don't make it super automotive. What's the point? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm a little disappointed by it, but I had a good time nonetheless. The roller coaster, I'm telling you, the roller coasters were pretty impressive. Um, just, you heard it here first on Unnamed Roller Coaster Podcast. Yes. Go um, to the UAE and check out Ferrari World if you're into that. But if you're into cars, just skip it. Yes. Uh, if you're into cars, you can see cars everywhere over there. I saw the I saw a 2017 Ford GT, a car that I thought was very limited, and you needed to apply in just to be able to get one. Are you saying that no one in the UAE could apply for that car? No. Well, I mean, I didn't. That kind expect, of sounds like what you're saying. I didn't expect to see one on my first day in the, in in the city. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, I saw a Bugatti Veyron just being driven like a Corolla around uh, a mar- a parking lot, a parking mall, like. 
it's it's quite impressive the the kinds of cars that you see there. What about uh, full size Chevy vans and um, Chevy Caprices? Okay, so I saw both of those. The Caprices definitely. And in terms of the Chevrolet, um, I wouldn't call them vans. I would say full size Chevrolet SUVs. I saw a number of those uh, Escalades. What about uh, wagons? No, not very many wagons. Because the B body is pretty big in the Middle East, so I've always been curious about that. Um, I was immediately impressed with the amount of Nissan patrols uh, that we saw. This is a car that we were talking about last week with the with the Nissan Armada, and I yes. saw even cars that I did not even know existed, including a, a Nismo version of the patrol, which uh, sounded really impressive. Uh, so Ben, as I was saying, these cars are a complete have a completely different image um, in another market than they do here. Uh, I I saw at least twenty a day, and here in, in North America, I. You can go days or maybe even weeks without seeing an Amada on the streets. Well, I mean, Suzuki is, I think, the biggest car company in Japan. I think That's they true. sell the and we don't see sell a the most. One. No, they they <laughs> left our mar- they left our market. But even before they left our market, they they had almost no dealerships and no presence. So it, it's it's really there can be such a variance from one country to another, and a lot of its history, a lot of its when a brand got there and whether they were able to establish a foothold before other brands, you know, maybe they beat them to the punch. Um, and they were able to build themselves up in the minds of the the people of that country. And sometimes it's as simple as that. And, and all the marketing dollars in the world, when brands come late to the game, can't necessarily, um, you know, put a hole in that. I did see a few cars that I didn't, I've never seen before, including things like the Suzuki Jimny, which is a tiny little 4x4. Like it, it's, it's, it reminded me of a Suzuki Swift, but a little bit more um, off-road ready. Yeah, you uh, see them sometimes in North America as well. Okay, well, I, I I've never seen them before, so I was really impressed by this little thing, um, and and that's definitely cool. And the amount of V8 and V10 powered vehicles that you hear on the roads is pretty cool. Um, I think that's about it. They also have a pretty big a pretty big uh, appreciation for muscle cars and uh, pony cars. So I saw a lot of Mustangs and Camaros. Those aren't just a, a distinctly American thing, is what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's uh, you mentioned Mustang, and that kind of segues into the, what I wanted to talk about uh, to close the podcast. And last week we talked about, I believe it was last week, we talked about the rather surprising news that we received while we were recording that Ford was phasing out all of its sedan production. And mm-hmm. pretty much every car except the Mustang is going to be gone within the next few years. They're just going to build SUVs and trucks. So um, a lot of that, it turns out, after a few, after about a week, the dust has settled a little bit, and people have been trying to figure out why this is happening. If, if you look at sales numbers, Ford sells probably three times as many Fusions as they do Edges, for example, and, or Mustangs, if you were to look at just the pure numbers. Mm-hmm. But they're able to make more profit on the Edge than they are on the Fusion. So even though they sell fewer of them, they make more money. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of reasons why that's the case. One of the reasons is people are being charged more for a comparatively sized SUV than a sedan because marketing has just always made that possible. If you go back to the 90s when Ford created the Explorer, they were able to really sell it at a premium price compared to what they've been selling trucks at before because marketing played a huge role in that. Yet flash forward to now, and um, there's there's an additional incentive. Thanks to uh, an article I read by Dan Neal on the Wall Street Journal who do- who dove really deeply into this. If you look at legislation surrounding the size of a vehicle and the regulations associated with its 
um, efficiency requirements from the EPA. They passed a rule in 2011 called the footprint rule. Mm-hmm. So the diameter of the vehicle, sorry, the perimeter of the vehicle within its four wheels, so you use those four wheels as a fence, and then the, the, the area inside that fence, it relates to what regulations apply to how efficient it has to be. Right. If it's bigger, it has it can be less efficient. It doesn't have to have these the latest were, engine. These doesn't were introduced have to have, during the CAFE standards, right? Yeah, 2011. Yeah. Um, but the CAFE standards have been around for a while, but this is a change to the CAFE standards. Okay. It's, it's, it's essentially a loophole. So the bigger your vehicle, the less efficient it has to be, and the less expensive it is to build because you don't have to put the latest technologies into it. So as a result, if you look at how vehicle sizes have grown, we've always talked about how big cars are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, over the last eight years or so, they've gotten bigger because it allows car companies to exploit this loophole. And in fact, if you have um, an SUV that's raised up and has all-wheel drive available, it counts as a small truck, which allows it to escape even more regulations. We're not just talking about efficiency at this point. We're talking about certain things related to safety and things of that things of that nature. So all of this together creates an environment where legislatively it is more profitable to build an SUV, not just because you're charging more money for it, but because it actually costs less money to build. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important to bring up. It, it does seem like a, it, I mean, it, doesn't it seem like a bit of a gamble for Ford to just believe that these reg, these regulations won't change? I mean, there's a whole new um, governing body in the United States that can, that can, that seems quite volatile and, and eager to change things on whenever they they see fit well it's always a risk to make a very very stark decision a sweeping one right yeah yeah for sure i i have to agree with you there there's a lot of risks here not just the risk of legislative change but also the risk of fuel prices changing because Mm -hmm. you're moving to a a less efficient fleet but you won't be punished for that from a federal perspective because you're moving into a different regulatory um perspective for that fleet but you will be punished if gas prices go up and people all of a sudden don't want to pay for their 23 mile per gallon average vehicle when they could have something that's way way more efficient yeah absolutely i actually did a little bit more research on this it seems to only affect north american markets i think there's still going to be things like the fiesta and the focus in europe uh they shouldn't be worried i don't think they should be worried about um their cars going away anytime soon it's it's very it seems to be very focused on the North American market. And I also don't think we should worry about other car companies following suit. I don't think they'll do it. But then again, I didn't think Ford was going to make this move. I had heard maybe a year ago that Ford was looking to get rid of the Ford, the, the Fusion and the Taurus. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't believe it. I didn't think it would happen because they're selling 200000 250000 a year. Yeah. I mean, the Taurus, but, the Taurus maybe, but the Fusion, no way. Um, it's interesting to see that. But I think other automakers – they have a much more global mindset um, and approach to well, their vehicles. You would think so, but Ford has always been talking about the one Ford global platform for years. But that's true, I mean, but they've also they too have changed um, leadership roles at the top. So it could just be a new a new mandate from from guys up at the for sure. Well, the mandate comes from the shareholders who want to see quarterly profits, not long term planning. That that's pretty much. I think the encapsulation of decisions like these that seem so short sighted. That's really that's a tough thing. Um, to think about really but if you have anything more you want to get in touch with either ben or myself about you know if you've seen cool cars in the middle east or you have more questions about that or if you want to learn more about the g70 or heck you just want to tell us what ford you're going to miss the most you can get in touch with us 
I prefer social media. You can find me at Sammy underscore ha, and you can find Ben at Hunting Benjamin. You can also find uh, these contact, this kind of contact information on our website. That's unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. And uh, at unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, you can subscribe, you can listen, you can go to your favorite podcasting platform, whether it's iTunes or uh, po- um, CastBox or Spotify. We're there. The links are there. You can find us very easily. You can also find us on Facebook mm-hmm. at Unnamed Automotive Podcast. And you can email me if you want to do email because I like email and I still do it even though Sammy hates it. And it's Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. And uh, Sammy, what, what are you going to be driving next week? Uh, next week, I've actually got my hands on a, you're going to laugh at this, a Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross. Um, oh, I'm not laughing. Okay. I'm, I was eager to get my hands on a long-term a longer term drive of it. I drove it way back during the LA Auto Show, and now I wanted to get a little bit more uh, closer acquainted to it, and maybe do a video with it as well. What about you? What do you What do you drive? I, next week, I want to talk about uh, two SUVs that I've driven recently that kind of um, face off against each other in, a, in an oblique way. The the BMW X2, which is brand new for this year, and the Alfa Romeo Stelvio, which I believe is also brand new for this year. Very cool. Look at you. We, we've got a whole bunch of brand new SUVs next week. Indeed, we are the we are the Ford of the podcasting world. <laughs> there we go. Uh, thank you for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye bye.